Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 23 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. I'm here to guide you through the latest decisions of the Information Commissioner and the First Tier Tribunal Information Rights in the four months from May to August 2010. In this episode, we'll be discussing decisions involving, amongst others, vexatious requests, the costs of compliance, requests made through the website whatdotheyknow.com, disclosure of Surveillance Commissioner reports, and the latest thinking on the personal data exemption. There's now a fair amount of jurisprudence from the Tribunal on what constitutes a vexatious request under Section 14. The Tribunal has approved the Information Commissioner's guidance, which states that if a public authority wants to deem a request as vexatious, it must make a reasonably strong case that it can answer yes to at least two of the following questions. Can the request be fairly be seen as obsessive? Is the request likely to cause harassment to the authority or cause distress to staff? Would complying with the request impose a significant burden on the authority in terms of expense and distraction? Is the request designed to cause disruption or annoyance? And does the request lack any serious purpose or value? Two recent tribunal decisions give more guidance on Section 14. In Rigby and the Information Commissioner and Blackpool Trust, the Tribunal considered that the Commissioner's guidance and the five questions were important in identifying a request as vexatious, but it's important not to take an overly structured approach. The Tribunal referred to a number of earlier cases and set out the factors which could be taken into account. Those factors include where the request involves information which has already been provided to the applicant, where the nature and extent of the applicant's correspondence with the authority suggests an obsessive approach to disclosure, where the correspondence could reasonably be expected to have a negative effect on the health and well-being of the employees of the public authority, where responding to the request would be likely to entail substantial and disproportionate financial and administrative burdens for the public authority, and where providing the information requested has tended previously to trigger further requests and correspondence. The Tribunal agreed that this particular request was vexatious. On its face, it was straightforward, but if viewed in context, it was part of a continuing campaign relating to the trust treatment of the requester's mother, and that campaign had become excessive. Any response would have been likely to trigger further requests, and indeed the trust had already fielded 56 separate requests. The Tribunal accepted that whatever the requester's intentions, the effect of his request had been to vex, that is to cause distress or irritation, given the language of the requests and the repeated allegations of bad faith against trust employees. In Young and the Information Commissioner, the requester was an individual who'd been prosecuted and convicted. He subsequently made a number of complaints about his arrest and detention, which were considered by the Independent Police Complaints Commission. A Freedom of Information request to the relevant police force was rejected as vexatious and the Commissioner upheld the authorities' handling of the request. On appeal, the Tribunal approved the approach in Rigby. It considered that the request was obsessive, might in some respects involve harassment of the authorities' staff and lacked serious purpose or value. On balance, the Tribunal accepted that it was vexatious, but it was careful to emphasise that it was not suggesting that the requester himself was vexatious and did not doubt his sincerity in believing that he had been wronged. The last point is important. Section 14 is about vexatious requests, not vexatious people. 
Each individual request must be considered on its merits, and of course the decision to treat a request as vexatious may lead to a complaint to the commissioner and further on to the tribunal. So sometimes it's easier to answer the request, even though it may be time-consuming, than to risk further requests and appeals to the commissioner and the tribunal. Section 12 of the Act and the Freedom of Information Fees Regulations mean that when a public authority wishes to refuse a request on cost grounds, it can only do so if the cost would be over the appropriate limit, taking into account the time it takes to do all the following things. And that time must be costed at £25 an hour. And those things that can be taken into account include the time it takes to determine whether it holds the information, locating the information, retrieving the information and extracting the information. In a tribunal decision involving a Mr John Jenkins, the Commissioner and DEFRA, which we discussed in episode 10, the question before the tribunal was whether extracting the information includes the time it takes for a public authority to redact exempt information from a document before disclosing the rest. The tribunal in that case agreed with the Commissioner that an act of deletion or redaction was not part of the extraction process and therefore could not be taken into account in deciding whether the appropriate limit had been reached. The tribunal did say that the point was not free from doubt. A later decision involving the Chief Constable of South Yorkshire Police and the Information Commissioner, which we discussed in episode 21, reached the same conclusion and was more precise on this point. A further decision on this point has now been reached by the Tribunal in Alistair Roberts and the Information Commissioner and the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills. In Roberts, the Tribunal accepted the established principle that costs of redacting, in this case names, are to be excluded. However, at paragraph 37, it went on to qualify this as follows. And where the task is as complex as it would have been in this case, we do not think it is appropriate for the whole process to be ignored for cost estimate purposes, simply on the basis that it could be said to fall within the broad scope of name redaction. That may be appropriate where the task is simply to locate individuals' names and redact them if they fall below a particular grade of seniority. But whereas here, the process requires a judgment to be made, document by document, balancing the various criteria we have identified, then we believe that much, if not all, of the process should be regarded as retrieving information from each document, which requires to be disclosed, and therefore properly included in the cost estimate. This case shows that the consideration about fees and cost estimate are by no means straightforward. What is extraction to one person may be simple redaction to another, depending on knowledge and capability. Expect more arguments on this point, especially in the area of whether simple redaction can still be taken into account in deciding whether the cost limit has been reached. The second decision in the case of Roberts also examines section 40, which we'll come on to later. In episode 20, we discussed the Commissioner's decision involving Backwell Parish Council. Here he stressed the importance of ensuring that information contained in a publication scheme is normally disclosed as a matter of course if it is requested. However, the Commissioner did say that there's nothing stopping a public authority from withholding information which is part of a publication scheme category if that specific information falls under one of the exemptions. 
That particular point has now been approved by the Information Tribunal on Appeal in the same case, the title of which is now Thomas Wilson and the Information Commissioner, which was decided in June of this year. On publication schemes generally, it's interesting to note that in March of this year, the Information Commissioner published a second publication schemes monitoring report looking at police forces and police authorities. The first report looked at central government. A brief follow-up report has now been produced, which looks at developments since the publication of the main report. According to the Information Commissioner's Office, the most disappointing aspect of its findings was that out of the 90 authorities monitored, some 26, around 30%, were found not to be operating an approved publication scheme. It found various reasons for this, including missing a class of information out of the adopted scheme, using an old publication scheme which was no longer approved by the Commissioner, and, in some cases, not having any sort of publication scheme in operation. Bearing in mind that the Commissioner recently announced a much tougher approach to freedom of information enforcement, all public authorities need to ensure that they meet the requirements imposed by Section 19 of the Freedom of Information Act. Many public authorities receive requests via the website whatdotheyknow.com. It's fair to say that this website is viewed with some mistrust by FOI officers and practitioners who see it as encouraging vexatious requests or sometimes as just encouraging requests by people who wouldn't normally make FOI requests. Many also object to having to respond through a website which publishes all requests as well as all responses automatically. Can a public authority refuse to deal with such requests? In a decision involving the House of Commons dated the 7th of June of this year, the complainant made a request for information to the House of Commons via his account on the whatdotheyknow.com website. He requested a copy of a document to be provided in electronic form. The House expressed its willingness to provide the information to the complainant, but only by way of an alternative email address. It said to provide the information through the whatdotheyknow.com website, knowing that the information would automatically be published, was not practical. It would raise copyright issues and therefore would also mean that the information is exempt under Section 43 as disclosure would harm their commercial interests. The Commissioner found that responding to a valid address in compliance with FOI is not a breach of copyright. He finds proof of this in Section 50 of the Copyright Designs and Patents Act. The subsequent publication of the information by the website automatically can still be addressed by the House as a copyright issue outside the FOI jurisdiction. With regards to relying on Section 43, the Information Commissioner noted that that was only in relation to if the House had to disclose the information through the whatdotheyknow.com email address. The House did not consider that the information would be exempt if it were provided to the complainant by way of an alternative email address or in hard copy. The Commissioner considered that an exemption may only apply to specific information in question and that the same conclusion must be reached regardless of the intended address for correspondence. As the House wasn't seeking to apply Section 43, if it had to disclose the information through an alternative email address or through hard copy, it could not rely on Section 43 just to withhold the information through the whatdotheyknow.com website. This decision suggests to me that it's perfectly legitimate for a person to use the whatdotheyknow.com website to make an FOI request. Authorities cannot simply refuse a request because of the way it has been made 
or what they believe the information will be used for in terms of publication on the website. They must apply the exemptions in a balanced way and of course they can always rely on section 14 if they believe that the request is truly vexatious because of the volume, because of the frequency of the request or because of the nature of the request. There's no exemption under the Freedom of Information Act for draft or unfinished documents unlike under the Environmental Information Regulations. However, when a draft contains information which is held by a public authority with a view to publication in the future, then Section 22 can be relied upon to withhold the information. In order to demonstrate that this exemption is engaged, a public authority must have an intention to disclose the precise information requested which is in the draft at some future point, and it must be able to demonstrate what information within that draft will be published in the future. In a commissioner decision involving Neath and Port Talbot County Borough Council, decided in August of this year, the complainant requested a report prepared by council in relation to the reorganisation of West Glamorgan's legal service. The council stated that the report was not concluded and was in draft. Following the commissioner's involvement, it claimed section 22 that the report was intended for future publication. The Commissioner found that the Public Authority did not provide enough evidence to support its view that Section 22 was engaged and ordered disclosure. Having looked into the report, he felt that the intention was to disclose certain key parts of the draft report in any final report. Therefore, there was no settled intention to publish all of the information which was within the scope of the request. The Commissioner also emphasised the importance of raising relevant arguments and evidence to back up any exemptions. He noted that he may only consider the provisions of the Act when reaching his decisions and he does not consider that in general his role is to assume arguments on behalf of a public authority or to introduce exemptions that might be more relevant to the disputed information. In the light of the many instances of controversial use of surveillance powers by local authorities under the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, the media often make FOI requests to public authorities for copies of Office of Surveillance Commissioner inspection reports. The OSC inspections are designed to ensure that public authorities comply with Part 2 of RIPA when doing covert surveillance. There's no single exemption which covers such reports and often they will be disclosable in their entirety as they'll contain no specific information about surveillance operations such as to jeopardise investigations. However, where the request is for wider information about surveillance activity or where the report contains details that may jeopardise investigations or operations, the Section 31 exemption may be claimed. In a Commissioner decision involving the BBC, dated May of this year, the complainant requested a copy of the OSC inspection report relating to the BBC. He also requested a copy of the OSC's covering letter and the BBC's response to the report. The BBC disclosed a redacted copy of the report, citing Section 31. The redactions included the following types of information in relation to the BBC's enforcement activity against those who do not hold a TV licence. That included the number of Ripper authorisations granted for the use of equipment, the process undertaken when investigating unlicensed premises, and information about detection equipment. The Commissioner considered that the withheld information in the context of TV licensing is extremely sensitive and was satisfied that disclosure would be likely to undermine the tactical advantage and ability of the BBC's monitoring officers to effectively use covert surveillance. He was therefore satisfied 
that the exemption in Section 31, Prevention or Detection of Crime, was engaged and that the public interest was in maintaining the exemption. The Section 36.2 exemption is the only FOI exemption which requires a qualified person to give his or her opinion that disclosure of the requested information would have a prejudicial effect on the subject of the exemption. In other words, that it would inhibit free and frank advice, deliberations, or would otherwise prejudice the effective conduct of public affairs. The qualified person will usually be the head of the public authority, or in the case of local authorities, the monitoring officer. In the first decision in Roberts and the Information Commissioner from November 2009, the tribunal held that because information could only be withheld under Section 36.2 if it was exempt at the time of the request, or more precisely at the time the request was being responded to, it followed that an opinion which was reached after the refusal notice was sent out could not constitute a valid opinion for the purpose of Section 36.2. This approach has recently been approved by the Information Tribunal in the case of Chief Constable of Surrey and the Information Commissioner. In the light of these decisions, public authorities should aim to ensure that wherever possible any Section 36 opinion is obtained prior to the release of the refusal notice. In the Surrey Police case, the Tribunal also emphasised the importance of keeping records about the opinion of the qualified person. It effectively held that a public authority will struggle to rely on the exemptions afforded under Section 36.2 if it does not keep a record of the opinion which has been reached and if, in the context of any record which it has made, it fails to identify the particular subsections of Section 36.2 which the qualified person has concluded are engaged. Notably, in reaching this conclusion, the tribunal confirmed that it was not the function of the commissioner to speculate about or forage around for opinions which might have been reached by the qualified person where there was no good evidence that such opinions had in fact been formed at the time the request was being responded to. In coming to this conclusion, the tribunal followed the decision in University of Lancashire and the Information Commissioner decided in December of 2009, where the tribunal highlighted the degree of rigour which must be applied when the relevant qualified person is seeking to formulate an opinion which engaged Section 36. This decision was discussed in episode 21 of our podcast series. Does the Freedom of Information Act require the names of staff and their contact details to be disclosed? This question is often the subject of debate and worry amongst public sector professionals, especially in local authorities who regularly receive requests to disclose the contents of the internal staff directory. The leading judgment in this area involves the Information Tribunal and was decided in July of 2007. It concerned the Ministry of Defence and the Information Commissioner and Rob Evans, where a request was received from a journalist for a staff directory which included the names and contact details of individuals who worked for a particular section of the Ministry of Defence. The tribunal ruled that the MOD could only withhold names of staff if they were particularly junior, not immediately responsible for the requested information, and where their name wasn't already available through other publications or because of their public-facing duties. The tribunal was not minded, however, to sanction the disclosure of telephone and email contact details, save for those which were already published, on the basis that disclosure would carry risks in terms of disruption to the organisation and inadvertent loss or leakage of information. This particular factor has been relied upon 
by the Information Commissioner recently in a decision involving Ealing Council. The complainant requested the names, job titles, departments and telephone numbers of all the council's employees, excluding school and manual staff. The council supplied some of the information but refused to disclose the remainder, claiming Section 36.2 disclosure would prejudice the effective conduct of public affairs. The commissioner agreed and said that the public interest in disclosure was outweighed by the public interest in withholding the information. In the Commissioner's view, access to over 3,500 email addresses in the public domain could lead to a rise in random direction of emails to all members of staff. This could result in council officers having to deal with substantial expansion in irrelevant inquiries. Furthermore, he considered that the mass release of employees' details into the public domain is likely to attract blanket targeting of those individuals by commercial organisations for marketing purposes. The cumulative distraction caused to council staff would have a detrimental impact on efficiency and service levels to the public. On balance, the Commissioner decided that there was a strong public interest in restricting access to staff contact details on a need-to-know basis in order to mitigate all the above risks and their impact on service levels. This decision provides welcome clarification for many local authorities who have had similar requests. There's no absolute rule that names should never be disclosed the seniority of the persons involved, the availability of the information elsewhere and any credible risk to the subject are relevant considerations. With regard to contact details, it seems that unless the details have been made publicly available, they can be withheld if there is a likelihood of possible disruption that could be caused from staff being emailed and telephoned directly as opposed to going through the normal contact channels such as switchboards. Section 40 provides an exemption from disclosure of personal data about the requester as well as that of third parties. With regards to the latter, the public authority must show that disclosure would breach one of the data protection principles. In Bryce and the Information Commissioner and Cambridgeshire Constabulary, the request concerned a report that had been produced following an inquiry undertaken after the appellant and two other individuals raised concerns about the way in which the police had investigated the death of the appellant's sister who'd been killed by her husband in September 1996. The report addressed the adequacy of the criminal investigation as well as with the way in which the complainants had been dealt with. This judgment is important because it looks at the controversial issue of the definition of personal data as well as the approach to adopt when a request contains information about a number of people. The first question the tribunal had to ask was whether the information being requested is personal data. Much has been written over the years about the significance of the Durant decision, which seems to substantially narrow the definition of personal data. According to Durant, personal data is only personal if it relates to an individual who is the focus of the personal data, which if disclosed would affect his privacy, and which is biographical about the individual in a significant sense. The tribunal applied the Durant approach to the concept of personal data rather than the arguably more liberal approach embodied in the Commissioner's guidance entitled Determining What is Personal Data. It concluded that not all the information requested contained personal data, for example, the glossary, the executive summary, as well as the background information. This decision proves that the Commissioner's interpretation of personal data is not the final word on the matter. It's worth noting that the Commissioner has not revised his technical guidance note on which his arguments before the Tribunal in these decisions were based. This shows that he still thinks that Durant is wrong 
and not in accordance with the European Data Protection Directive. This is a view which is shared by some data protection specialists as well as the European Commission. The next issue for the tribunal in Bryce was whether disclosure of the personal data would be fair and lawful in accordance with the first data protection principle. Apart from Miss Bryce's own personal data, which of course was exempt under Section 40, Subsection 1, the tribunal approached this question to the remaining data by conducting a discrete analytical exercise in respect of each different person's personal data. It is clear from the tribunal's analysis that it is of the view that very different considerations applied, for example, in respect of officers' data as compared to the data relating to the husband's family. It seems that a public authority cannot simply adopt a one-size-fits-all approach to information comprising of different persons' personal data. Section 41 exempts information where disclosure would lead to an actionable breach of confidence. When it comes to requests for commercial information, it is often used in conjunction with Section 43. These exemptions were invoked by Mid-Yorkshire Hospitals NHS Trust in May 2010 when it received a request for a PFI project agreement including the financial model. The complainant later explained that he would be satisfied if he could have the cash flows which related to published internal rates of return. The Commissioner was satisfied that the Trust applied the Section 41 exemption appropriately to both the financial model and the cash flows. He gave weight to the sensitivity of the information, the existence of a confidentiality clause in the project agreement, the usefulness of the information to competitors, the fact that the information was still current, and that the information would not be of great assistance to the public when assessing value for money. Interestingly, the Commissioner drew assistance from a number of decisions on the same issues made by the Scottish Information Commissioner under the Freedom of Information Scotland Act. Of course, these are not binding on the Information Commissioner, but do seem to be persuasive in similar fact cases. This decision notice is currently under appeal to the First Tier Tribunal Information Rights. The outcome should provide more guidance on the application of Section 41 to financial information about PFI projects. That concludes episode 23 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. The next podcast will be in November. Before then, you can always catch up on the latest developments in information law, as well as surveillance law, by attending one of our workshops or by downloading one of our free information law web seminars. Don't forget that ActNow is now one of the UK's leading providers of courses leading to the ISEB certificate in Freedom of Information as well as Data Protection. The next Freedom of Information course starts in November in Manchester. There are a few places left, so if you'd like to know more, please email info at actnow.org.uk. We're now on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. Follow us for the latest information law developments delivered for free direct to your desktop or even smartphone. ActNow Training also offers an FOI helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal FOI expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service. Through the helpline, I'll be available to guide you through the relevant area of law, discuss possible exemptions and how to deal with any complaints. At a time of increasing pressure on public sector budgets, the ActNow Freedom of Information Helpline is the most cost-effective solution for your FOI problems. Thank you for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.